Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, you've requested of all who believe that they come boldly before the throne of grace to receive grace and help in time of need. And so we come, Father, not slowly or with reservations, but but boldly to your throne of grace. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us in such a way that we might know you as our heavenly Father, that we might know the riches of your grace, that we might be instructed in these matters from your word often, that we might take that word in as spiritual food, that we might grow and prosper. Though we're not of this world, we are certainly still in this world. And as such, we always are in constant need of your sustenance, your love, your grace, your protection, um, and uh, your guidance and wisdom that we might live in this world in an honorable way and to be a witness to those still in the darkness and also to those who are saved but who have not received the teaching that's been provided. So, Father, I, I just pray that uh, you would continue to work in and through us. Thank you for our meeting today and those that have gathered here. We're missing some greatly, uh, but you're not missing them because they're with you. Um, Father, we pray for this uh, nation and its people. We pray for, especially for the churches and for the believers who are part of those assemblies, Father. And we pray for them that they might be instructed by your word, always encouraged and strengthened, and not led astray by false doctrines, which are so readily being promoted, it seems, nearly everywhere. So, Father, I just pray that though we live in dark times, and though our government is so given over often to evil, uh, there are those that still speak the truth, Father. I pray that they speak the truth spiritually, not just politically. But, Father, I pray that our nation might be somehow preserved and not continue down this path as other nations have. And we look to the north and see Canada with its uh, socialist government becoming even more evil uh, rapidly as these Christian pastors now are being arrested. Father, we know that could also happen here and already has in some ways, in some limited ways, but uh, we know that's uh, very possible here too. So, Father, we do pray for them and for us that we would be protected from that, that things might not go that far astray, although we know that if you allow it, and it does go even further uh, into evil, so that your people are persecuted even in those ways or worse. Father, I just pray that you would sustain us all. Uh, we know that down through the history of the church, um, persecution has always been dominating in the world. And uh, many have suffered the loss even of life itself. So, Father, we just uh, are reminded, that, therefore, that we are totally dependent on you. And in every way, uh, all that we have in our it goes back to you and your provision and your grace. All that we possess is really not ours, but yours as a gift. It can be gone in a moment, even life itself. So, Father, thank you for gathering us today. And uh, may we be uh, encouraged to speak boldly. And all those uh, who are speaking boldly in this nation, I pray that they would do so even more so and more firmly and more properly and more uh, truthfully in the days that come. We pray that many would be motivated and encouraged through that bold speaking to themselves speak for it. 
I pray that we would be motivated as we consider what Paul has written to the Corinthians again today. So please bless our meeting, Heavenly Father. And uh, there's so many unspoken needs, and yet you, of course, work greatly through those hearing those requests of the Spirit of God who dwells in each of us. And so we know full well, therefore, that all things are working together for good to them that love thee and are the called according to your purpose. Thank you again, Heavenly Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Normally, I give a bit of a review, and uh, today we're going to not do a review, mainly due to the teaching that we need to cover today and how I know it will take longer than I had thought it would. So let's just skip our review. I, I will say that Paul, in introducing chapter 5 of his second letter to the Corinthians, and again, I, I remind you, there are no chapter divisions in what Paul wrote. <laughs> the chapter divisions are in the translations <clears throat> that have come down to us. And uh, you can easily see how chapter 5 just continues chapter 4. There's really no division in thought at all there between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And the whole point of it is that Paul writes that our lives are always being transformed when we consider the truth of what's yet ahead for us eternally. So, therefore, he focuses very much on what's ahead for all of us eternally. And he says the the prospect of that, in other words, the grasping onto that in mind, heart, soul, and spirit by faith is always uh, powerfully being used to transform us. He says, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, right? So that's how chapter 3 ends, uh, and um, chapter 4 continues the same subject, and, and in chapter 5 he says, we have a building of God in the heavenlies. Uh, he's talking about uh, not an actual house, but more like a tabernacle. He calls it a tabernacle there in verse 1 of chapter 5. And he says, this is where we are going to dwell. He's talking about our resurrected bodies, which are already being prepared. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? So that's what we have to look forward to. I love this verse 4. I will read that for you again. That, that'll be well in our minds here today. He said, we that are in this tabernacle, I mean the one we have right now, do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, in other words, to go on eternally bodily, not that we would be unclothed without even anybody of any sort, but clothed upon with the heavenly body that the Lord has prepared, right? That mortality might be swallowed up of life. These are wonderful words. I'm sure many have been motivated by them down through the years uh, to commit themselves to serving the Lord, uh, not being saved, uh, as Paul will write later in the letter. We'll look at it today where he says, we should not receive the grace of God in vain. <laughs> in other words, without it having a, a dramatic and transforming effect on us here, right? So uh, if we are receiving the grace of God properly, we'll not only be saved, but we'll be dedicated to the Lord and to his precious word of grace. And that's what our lesson today is all about, okay? So um, that's enough of a review. Let's uh, immediately get into the teaching today. Our outline, a very simple one. First of all, 
And we'll be starting in verse 14 today. So 2 Corinthians 5, 14 will be the beginning of our teaching today. So the first point, our great gift of salvation encourages our acceptable response. So there are unacceptable responses. Uh, many are saved and do not walk with the Lord, sadly, in uh, moral ways, but also uh, as far as spirituality is concerned, there are false spirituality is abounding everywhere right so first point our great gift of salvation encourages our acceptable response secondly our response in his acceptable time must always reflect his grace paul mentions time there he mentions opportunities at the beginning of chapter six and uh Certainly, our response to God's great gift of salvation in his acceptable time must always reflect his grace. Grace is what God is abundantly involved in working out for us, in us, and through us. And uh, that is the mark, really, of our lives. There should be. And uh, so Paul's writing about it that way because the Corinthians, in some cases, had gone very far astray from uh, reflecting his grace. In fact, they were reflecting just the opposite there in Corinth, which is why Paul wrote the letter. So first, and I'll be asking Linda to read these verses for us in a moment. Our great gift of salvation encourages our acceptable response. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Linda, verses 14, 15, and 16. Would you please read that for us? For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, ye have henceforth known, know we him no more, no more. Thank you, Linda. Yes, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Those are certainly verses to contemplate and to spend some time with, aren't they? And I mentioned, I think last time and other times as well, in the distant past, I remember talking about that flight from Pittsburgh to Boston and how the woman sitting next to me <laughs> uh, was put there because the flight was overbooked. And uh, they asked if anybody would be willing to leave the flight so that others could get on. And she and her husband and children were on their way to a wedding in, uh, I guess, in New England somewhere. So uh, they'd got separated and were on different flights, but uh, she was then put in the seat next to me and uh, wondered what, what I was reading. Was I not on a business trip? I guess she could tell that I was. <laughs> Sir, are you on a business trip? I said, uh, yes. She said, well, what are you reading? And I said, the word of God. Oh, that's interesting. The word of God. And I was reading right here in these various, these very verses were, uh, that Linda just read. <clears throat> and uh, so she was quite surprised that I'd be reading the word of God. So I asked her to read the words. And then we talked about it. And she was gloriously saved uh, in that 90-minute flight from uh, Pittsburgh um, and went forth to testify to her husband who was waiting at the uh, gangway there when she went off the plane and uh, he didn't want to hear a word of it. And she told me he will not want to hear a word of it, but I must speak. And this will change my life and our life forever. 
Well, so I don't know how it went. That was the last I saw of her. Um, so verses 14 and 15 make it a statement that I think should cause us some considerable thought and uh, contemplation. He says, the love of Christ constraineth us. And he explains why that is. Now, he's talking about himself. This is Paul's testimony, right? Paul says that um, knowing the love of Christ for sinners properly changed his life. And here he uses the word constrain, constraineth us. So it certainly changed his life to know properly what the love of Christ was all about. And uh, he he uh, says uh, some things about that here in this in this section that we want to consider carefully today. And so if that's the case, then it's possible to receive salvation and not uh, to receive it in such a way, that our response to it is acceptable. In other words, people can be gloriously saved, and every salvation is glorious indeed. But what if we're all caught up in false teaching and placing ourselves back under Moses' law or some other law, right? Some religious standard that uh, uh, a particular group promotes and instead of the truth of grace. I mean, what if? So the response may not be appropriate. And so what Paul writes here is that there is a proper response, and he explains more about that. Now, he's going to use quite a few words to do this, and so I I hope uh, you bear with me today as we look at this very, very carefully, because there's a lot of value here in taking Paul seriously in this matter. And so what does he say here? He's saying it's the love of Christ that constrains us. And he explains it. He says, "For because we thus judge. In other words, it, the love of Christ, Paul says, is constraining me, Paul, because I'm judging, I'm, I'm thinking this way, right? <clears throat> that... If one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So what Paul is saying is that the love of Christ for sinners, for sinners, (laughs) motivated him to offer himself as our sacrifice, as our substitute, taking our sin upon himself, fully paying the penalty for that sin, and then being gloriously raised from the dead according to the redemptive plan uh, that had been worked out, right? And so that's exactly what Christ did. So Christ was motivated to do it by his love for sinners, not not for for the righteous, not for the good ones, uh, for the evil ones, well, for all. I mean, he saw them all as sinners, right? He died for all. So if that was the case, it was because they all were spiritually dead and separated from him. And the only way that barrier could be uh, somehow breached and fellowship established would be if the transgressions and the sins were taken away somehow. In other words, that they were paid for. And so that's what he says he gave himself for. And he gave himself, it says here, for all. Now, Paul writes about this uh, also in other places. Romans 4.25, Romans 4.25 says, He died for us all and rose again for our justification okay that's romans 4 25 okay so now in verse 16 so he says wherefore henceforth know we 
And this is a remarkable statement indeed. Henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. So there's a great shift, Paul says, in his thinking from some points in his past to the present time. A great change in Paul's thinking. He says, once, he said, we knew Christ after the flesh. And then that changed. He says, yet now, henceforth know we him no more. In other words, no more after the flesh. Uh, But how did he then come to know him? Well, he goes on to write of that in other letters. So he wrote the letter to the Philippians, I think after the letter to 2 Corinthians, but the teaching there is quite similar because he writes to the Philippians from Rome being imprisoned there, right? The Corinthian letter was certainly not written from a prison. Okay, so uh, Paul in Philippians, and in chapter 2, he wrote these amazing words and about the love of, of Christ and what led Christ ultimately to the incarnation. So let's uh, look into that for a moment, because it's teaching the same thing as we find here, just with different words. So, Gail, would you please read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Let not every man look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. So the question really for us is, are we motivated as Christ was, as he left heaven's glory, to offer himself as our substitute as that perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins and for those of the whole world. Are we motivated as he was? Are we motivated as Paul was? Because Paul says he had a total change of heart and began to think differently about Christ and who Christ was. Okay, so the question is, are we motivated that way? And the answer to the question has to do with how we understand the love of Christ. Do we really understand the love of Christ properly? Uh, And Paul's writing here uh, a number of different things in order to help us better understand the point he's making here about the difference between knowing Christ after the flesh And as he writes in Romans early on there, knowing Christ after the Spirit. Okay, so um, I'd like uh, actually for Dana to read from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, where we'll see that distinction made. Dana? Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace 
and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Okay, thank you, Dana. So you see there is a clear distinction Paul is making, which I think many have not grasped onto at all. If they had, they would change their preaching. But um, he contrasts there Christ, Jesus, uh, according to the flesh, made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, right? And declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And then Paul says, by whom, in other words, the, the resurrected Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what Paul is doing there is contrasting two different ways of knowing Christ. They're both legitimate ways to know him. Both are based upon facts, and they are indeed. But according to the flesh, uh, Christ came as the seed of David in order to be Israel's Messiah, all right, in order to fulfill the promises that have been made to God's people, the Jews, uh, in the appointed time, and to do so by exalting them over all the nations. They would make Jerusalem the capital of the world, in fact, and that will yet occur, right? And in so doing, he will uh, put down Satan and his world plan at least for a thousand years until the end of that 1,000-year kingdom rule of Christ on a throne in Jerusalem with the rule of iron, causing all uh, to submit uh, to his rule of righteousness there from that throne. So, uh, and fulfilling the promises that have been made to Jews down through the centuries, which they have not yet received. Many of, of them died in faith, but not receiving. They did die in faith, but not receiving their inheritance, but they will yet receive it. So that's the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the flesh. In other words, according to the prophetic teachings that we find throughout the Old Testament, right? Um, but Paul says Christ's resurrection changed everything after he had paid the full penalty for our sins. And that and, and, and that takes us back where we were there in Second Corinthians chapter um, chapter five. Verse 16, wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Now, you might think, and uh, I think it's generally uh, interpreted this way, that what that's all about is Christ and Paul's relationship before Paul became a believer, in other words, before the Damascus Road experience, <laughs> that he knew Christ as an unbeliever, in other words, after the flesh in that sense, and then after his encounter with the Lord according to the Spirit, in other words, spiritually, carnally versus spiritually, as an unbeliever and then as a believer, right? That that's somehow what Paul is referring to there in verse 16 when he writes, Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. And there is that difference. He certainly knew about uh, the earthly Messiah and the promises regarding him. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He'd been taught by Gamaliel. He was the best student of Gamaliel, apparently. And in fact, he was recognized as such there in Jerusalem. He didn't know Christ spiritually. In fact, he persecuted Christians. Remember what he did with Stephen, for example. Stephen was martyred because the, because Saul brought a, a, a 
charge against him, and and that charge resulted in the death penalty by stoning. Right, that was Saul's response to his knowledge about who Jesus was, which you'd have to say wasn't real knowledge after all in any sense, right? Saul could have been saved in those days if only he had been saved the way others were, right? In that Pentecostal period, but he was not. But I believe that what uh, Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 is not the unsaved view of Christ versus the view of a believer, but rather something else completely. And that's what Paul does mention there in Romans chapter 1, where where Dana read. There's a different message that has to do with the completed work of Christ on Calvary's cross uh, that has taken away the sin of the world in an absolute and final sense. It's been paid for. So uh, that is what has been written here by Paul, and he'll go on to write more about it in the next verses. So I'd like us to look at those next verses where he makes this statement very, very strongly and clearly. Um, So, Jerry, would you read, please, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, Be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become righteousness of God in him. Thank you. Very good, Jerry. Thank you very much for reading those those key verses. Now, there we have uh, in in, uh, short form, basically, the statement of... uh, the reconciliation of the world through the sufficient, all-sufficient death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it's all in very absolute terms. And he's writing there about the change made when a person actually becomes a believer today. Okay, the change that's made is dramatic. Um, He says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. New is the key word there. Old things are passed away. Old things. Behold, all things are become new. He's talking about the recreation uh, spiritually of a person, a sinner, right, who has now become saved through faith in Christ. Christ and his all-sufficient work on Calvary's cross, right? And he says in verse 18, all things, notice all absolutes and universal terms, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, now he goes on in these absolute terms. To wit, let me remind you, he says, That God was in Christ, or really by, in the Greek, by Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. How can that be? Well, they were imputed rather unto Christ himself, who became their perfect sacrifice, okay? So uh, their trespasses were placed upon the Lord's account, taken off of theirs, and as a result, he says, they've been set free, right, and hath committed unto us the word of this reconciliation. And so then he goes on in the next verses to talk about himself and how he's been made ambassador 
for Christ with this message. Okay, so there's absolute language there. It's very, very strongly stated. And it talks about how complete and how all-sufficient the work of Christ for sinners was and is. Okay, so he's saying that for a believer, if any man be in Christ, that person is now in a different world altogether from the world that they were in. Yes, they still possess a body, still suffering the effects of Adam's sin that was passed down generation to generation. They still possess a sin nature, yes. Uh, every believer today is still uh, possessing a sin nature. Uh, those that teach otherwise are teaching falsehoods. It's pretty severe uh, and dangerous indeed. There are many today preaching that. Um, but that person has been changed spiritually and possesses a new nature, possesses the Holy Spirit of God. We saw that from our lesson last week, right? The Spirit of God dwells in us and possesses Christ in his resurrection life. Christ himself is in us. Okay? And if we wanted to focus more fully on it, we could show how God the Father also indwells believers today. So the triune God indwells believers today. Okay, that's the result of this redemption that's so glorious. Okay, but if it's true that the, as he says here, the the trespasses are not being imputed to anyone, then how is it not true uh, that they're all saved? See, they're not all saved. <laughs> how can it be that all are reconciled, uh, as he's written right here, but yet they are not saved? And that's the big question that he goes on uh, to answer mostly in other places, but also, I believe here, as we go on in these, this letter set before us here today. So how is it that not all are saved if their trespasses are not being uh, imputed to them any longer? OK, um, well, the answer is implied here very strongly that the message of reconciliation must still be received. Um, and if it's refused by unbelief, then that person has at least that sin to their account. It has not been paid for. If it had been, if the sin of unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ had been paid for by Christ when he died on the cross for us all, then all would be saved. There would be no longer any need to preach the good news concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, right? But there is a need, and he goes on here to state how important that need is. Okay, so he says in verse 20, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech by us. By the way, the use, there are two use there that are just added by the translators. They're not really there. Uh, this is the message. It's not that these Corinthians need to be saved again somehow, as if they may have lost their salvation through evil, sinful lifestyles. No, they don't need to be resaved. Uh, he He's not really saying to them, we pray that you'll be reconciled to God. They already have been. That's not the point of it. Uh, but the point is that this is the message there that, that must be shared, that must be preached, that must be taught, that Reconciliation to God now requires that personal faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as the completed sacrifice for all of our sins. And I think that's the part that gets left out of the gospel all of the time, along with the resurrection that gets left out too. But uh, here he says, he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when a person believes the good news concerning Christ, that he died for our sins, meaning for all of them paying the full penalty, that he was buried and that he was raised again the third day, uh, that is the message of salvation that one must believe. All of the other 
so-called good newses that are around uh, are uh, not only according to the flesh, as it were, and that's what he's referring to earlier, uh, but off track sufficiently. No one can be saved through believing those those messages. It's only one message, and that's the one he summarizes here. Okay, so Paul now is going to go on, and he's going to talk about the effect this must should have the effect that it must have yes that it should have on all of us who have believed that's in the next chapter um tom would you please read uh in second corinthians chapter six verses one and two. Second corinthians chapter six verses one and two we then as workers together with him beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Tom. So here we see what the proper response is in his acceptable time, and how we must always reflect his grace. So Paul says here, we're all workers together with him, beseeching, (laughs) beseeching, that's a very, very strong word, that the grace of God not be received in vain. Okay, so here now we have the Corinthians that are receiving this letter, and Paul says, you should not ever receive the grace of God in vain. That means without the proper effects following. Okay, one can be saved eternally by receiving the grace of God by faith, right? Uh, But then to go on and live a life that's apart from and uh, contrary to the working of his grace, I mean, that is, of course, uh, exactly... uh, to bring forth great works <laughs> that will someday be burned at the judgment seat of Christ, right? Not founded on the proper foundation. We looked at that last time in our, our meeting here, okay? So the point of Paul's meeting is that salvation should be understood properly, uh, and we should understand sinners are sinners, um, And in need of salvation, and without it, they're they're in a different world than we're in altogether. And we need to look at them the way Christ considered us all before he came into this world. Motivated by a pure love that attaches to the worth of that which one loves and not looking for some kind of benefit for oneself, some kind of uh, self uh, justification or reward, right? But rather a pure love, a pure agape kind of love. And uh, that's how we should see the loss. But if, if we see the loss that way, then we'll not receive the grace of God in vain, but we'll want to be a witness and a testimony to others of that. And so that's what Paul now writes about in these next verses. Oh, my. And there are many verses here. I'd like Patty to read some of them for us. And we'll save these again. We'll look at this next time, uh, I believe, that, but uh, Lord willing. But Patty, would you uh, read now what Paul writes about himself and his own testimony, because he just said we should not ever receive the grace of God in vain. So now he's going to explain how one can receive the grace of God, not in vain, but properly, acceptably. Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, 
by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Okay, thank you. That's the most detailed description of the trials and tribulations of the Apostle Paul found in any of his letters. It compares very much with what he wrote already in chapter 4, only here the list uh, is as long or longer than what is there. Okay, so this is what Paul has set forth himself as, as in fact, an ambassador of Jesus Christ, right? Why was he willing to sacrifice so much for the sake of those that did not know the grace of God properly? Why was he willing to sacrifice so much for the lost who had never heard? Even his life itself would ultimately be given over, right? Why? It's because the love of Christ was motivating him. It's because he had learned Christ properly. He knew Christ as he truly was, according to the spirit of holiness, as he writes there in Romans chapter 1. Not according to the flesh. There are many that preach Christ according to the flesh today. And their message is, yes, you can become a believer. To do that, you must follow Christ and do what he did. And that's not the message of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is preaching that we must follow Christ as Paul followed him. And that's as he revealed himself to Paul from heaven's glory. And that has to do with how God is working today according to the riches of his grace. Okay, so I hope we see some significant differences here because they're here very clearly revealed again here in the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter. So Paul's testimony is supposed to be in the forefront of the minds of the Corinthians. And if it is, it'll make a difference when he exhorts them, as he will next in the next verses, very, very strongly. It's probably the strongest exhortation found, uh, well, nearly anywhere, except maybe a stronger one in Philippians chapter 4. But uh, it's one of the strongest exhortations found anywhere in Paul's writings. But without receiving Paul's witness and his testimony as he reveals it here, they will not be pre prepared to receive his exhortation, which is going to be, stop living like the world. Be separate from it in every way. And God will be your father, as it were, and you'll be, as it were, his children in perfect harmony and all gloriously experiencing the full grace that's always sufficient. So praise God for his wonderful grace. Uh, the Corinthians are in need of a great, uh, really even a, previously it was a rebuke, right? And now it's a father, as it were, reaching out to children uh, with the word of love and grace. And that's what we find here in this letter to the Corinthians. Praise God for his wonderful grace. How will we respond? Will we respond as he would hope, holding forth the word of life? Will we? I pray that we will. Amen. Amen. What a message. Well, I pray that this has been a blessing to you as we 
looked carefully at what Paul has written here and uh, provided some help in understanding just by looking very carefully at the words he's used and and how he has written this because it's what Paul has written here that's to give us the instruction we're very much in need of. It was true for the Corinthians and it's true for us. Praise God for his abounding and always sufficient grace. Enjoy the Lord. All any any comments uh, or questions before we close in prayer today? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for blessing us with your word of grace today. Thank you for Paul and his teaching, because without it, uh, we would uh, suffer loss for sure, and not knowing. Uh, that much about what you are doing today under grace. Uh, and uh, so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for his teaching, and may it be taken to heart. And for those parts of his teaching that we don't properly understand, and there's much of us, much of it where we still need un more understanding, Father, I just pray that we'd wait on you for that teaching. The Spirit of God would give us understanding. And as Paul wrote to all uh, those believers in his day and through them uh, and through those words also to us uh, that we would be filled with understanding of, of the glories, Father, of your completed work through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might rise above the affairs of this world, be lights in the darkness, always uh, holding forth this precious word of life, that we might see a heritage in the eternity future, right? Uh, many who have uh, uh, come into the family uh, through uh, ours or, or through the message of others who boldly spoke this precious truth to those that were still lost until by faith, through grace, they became believers. So, Father, thank you again for our opportunities to be lights. I pray that we would be bold for you. And we would ask that, Father, in Christ's name. And amen, amen, amen.